It is my pleasure and as well as privilege to be back with you tonight. It is, I have to commend you, you know, to, to realize for three weeks in a row or these three sessions in a row on Sunday evenings, you've known your director of missions was going to be here and you came anyway. Thank you. You know, that's commendable because, you know, you could have chosen to do a lot of things tonight, but I appreciate you being here. I think every time I come here, I, I, I come home. This family, we were singing ago, a moment ago, the family of God, and it really is. And it's kind of neat, even though my membership may be somewhere else, the bottom line is everywhere we go, everywhere we worship together, we are in the family of God. And that's how you make us feel every time we come. And I say thank you for that. A missionary friend of mine a couple of weeks ago, or actually several months ago, where he and I were talking, and he was sharing some stories of early in his ministry overseas. And one of the things that he said really, really jumped out at me. He made the comment that one of the first mornings, it might have been the first morning, that he woke up realizing, you know, as an IMB missionary on the field, you know, waking up in my own bed in a foreign country, he woke up and he realized, I am a missionary. I am a missionary. Then he said, my next thought was, let's go to work. Let's just go to work. That missionary is sitting right over here. Your pastor is the one that said that. And I appreciated that so much because I think that's the attitude we all need to take every day because God truly, truly has called us to be on mission, his mission, every day. Let me just take us back for just a moment. Four weeks ago, that's right, four weeks ago, we looked together at worldview and culture. And I closed that session with a question. And it really had to do with being a missionary. The idea, the understanding, should this be me? Not could this, but should this be me? A prepared disciple who God sends into the world with his resources to make disciples for the kingdom. Then two weeks ago, we looked together at another perspective of this. If we're going to be missionaries, if we're truly going to take up this banner and say, I want to be a prepared disciple. I want for God to send me on His assignment every day. I want to see His resources as they meet not only my needs, but more importantly, the needs of the people that I come in contact with every day so that they become disciples for the kingdom. I want to see that happen. And as we do, we began to realize in community where we live, the oikos, right where we are, there's people all around us, our community, that need to know Jesus and in that regard, we talked about being salt and being light. And I ask you at the conclusion of last week's session, a very probing question. It has to do with our motivation, not our obedience, our motivation. Why are you doing what you're doing? 
If you answer that any other way, then I'm doing it because God first loved me. What we're doing is for the wrong reasons. If it's anything other than God first loved me, we have to question our motivation. If I'm doing it to see lost people saved, that comes back to me. I want that. If it comes, it has to do with anything other than, God, it has to do with your love for me first. We need to be very careful because it's all about him as we're going to see tonight. But as we think about this and as we look at this, here's the question we're going to ask tonight. Here's the probing question that we need to discover together. Do you really know what to do when they say yes? Whether that yes is in the very beginning when you're talking to your neighbor and you simply say, would you like to come over to my house and watch a, a Christian movie? You know, I'm a member of First Baptist Church and I've, I saw this really cool movie that I think you would enjoy watching with me. And they say, yes. Do you know what to do next? Go get the movie. Get ready. Show it. In conversation with that person, as you begin to share your story, how Jesus has come into your life, and what he means in your life, and you ask him, does this make sense? And they say, yes. Do you know what to do next? Are you ready to share the gospel with them? And then as you share the gospel, and you get to the very end of asking them, would you like to pray and ask Jesus to come into your life? And they say, yes. What do you do? Once they pray and ask Jesus to come in their life and you begin to tell them there's things that you need to begin to do to grow as a Christian. And they say, yes, I want to grow as a Christian. Do you know what to do next? See, that what do you do when they say yes isn't just for receiving Christ. That's usually where we stop. But it has to do from the moment you meet them till that maturity don't you remember Jesus talked about that? And that was a challenge that Paul gave us, that we're to present them mature. All along the way, there are yeses that we need to be prepared for. And to do that, it comes full circle back to us. We need to stop and look at really our heart. Go back to that question of motivation a moment ago. Let's start there once again. And let's look at some things together tonight as we think about heart and fields. Now, we'll get to God's heart and his fields in just a moment. But he starts with us. Christ died for you. There was a reason that he died for you. And you've probably heard it said as many times as I've heard it said. Had there only been one lost person, Jesus would still have died just for that one. That's how precious humanity is. That's how driven our God really is. He wants to see us saved and growing in that relationship with him.
And even though I've just outlined three areas, these probably are the areas that we really, really, really need to spend time talking about as we discover our own heart and the heart that God would have to develop within us. Because if we're not willing to say yes to doing all of this, then we're really not accomplishing what he saved us to do. And so let's look at these for just a moment. First of all, abiding in Christ. In John chapter 15, there's two verses that I want us to look at together for just a moment because these really do speak to the heart of who we are, who we are to be. Jesus says there in John chapter 15, verse 5, I am the vine. Beloved, let's understand something about that statement. Jesus is saying, I'm all that you need. Everything that you will ever desire, every, anything that you will ever need, I already am. I am your sustenance. I am your joy. I am peace. I am love. I am your hope. I am eternal life. I am the bread of life. I am the vine. I am everything you're going to need. I'll provide. You are the branches. You know, sometimes I think we get in kind of a mindset that we have a choice in all of this. Okay, yes we do. It's called obedience or disobedience. That's the only choices we really have. When Jesus said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Everything about our life is coming from Jesus. Once we pray and ask Jesus to come into our life, the very reality of our life, our hope, our peace, our joy, our love, all of it is drawn from Him. We cannot manufacture it. We cannot make it happen. It's all about Him still. I am the vine. You are the branches. You remain connected to me. Then he said, He who abides in me, and I in him. This one blows me away. Jesus is saying there, I want you a part of my great work. And it calls for you to abide in me. That's what we were just talking about, vine branches. But now then he puts it another way, in a very personal way. Abide in me. Make your tent in me. Spend time in me. And I'm going to be in you. We come together. We're not lone rangers. We're not out there trying to figure out how do we do this. How, where, where am I going to get any help? Jesus is saying, I'm already it, and you have that power. You have that ability abiding in me. Now then, all of that speaks of that saving relationship we have and that growth relationship we're to be having with him in that daily walk with him. But here's what comes next. It is the very purpose. Why, have, why does he want us to be saved? What has he saved us to do? Next, Jesus says, 
He bears much fruit. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I am him, he bears much fruit. Now let's be very clear. Jesus is not talking about spiritual gifts. Jesus is talking vine, branches, fruit. The fruit of an apple tree is an apple, and inside that apple are seeds. And when you plant those seeds in the ground, what grows? An apple tree. Not apples, apple trees. It's not the fruit of the Spirit he's talking about here. He's talking about spiritual children. He's talking about you and I sharing our faith with other people so that they pray and ask Jesus to come into their life and you begin to teach them. You begin to help them, develop them, disciple them so that they would begin to do the same thing because he goes on from there and he says, for apart from me you can do nothing. He reminds us in this whole process, unless we stay vitally connected, unless we have his purpose in mind, we're not going to have spiritual children because we're not going to be abiding in him, and that's the only way it happens. But now if that doesn't shake you to the bones, listen to what Jesus now comes and says to us in the 16th verse, Jesus reminds us, you did not choose me. When you think of all of who we are as the family of God, the children of God, having that saving relationship with Jesus Christ, he brings us back to reality. He says, you didn't choose me. The choice you made in the beginning, when you first heard about Jesus Christ, and you began to weigh the evidence of this one true living God really loving a sinner like you, you know what you said to him? No. Every one of us did. Every one of us said no to him. You did not choose me. You did not come looking for me, but that word chose is the idea that he, it's very active. He came looking for us. He willfully chose to leave heaven. He willfully chose to come in that manger and to be born into this world, a human being. Yes, fully God, fully man, but he chose to do that for a purpose because he chose to die on a Roman cross for your sins and for my sin. That's what Jesus chose, but you and I said no to that. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Isn't that great? That's the very heart of the good news. I chose you. You didn't come looking for me, but I came looking for you. And folks, that you is not just those of us in this room. It's every single person that you know in that oikos and beyond. No matter where you go, Jesus died for the people you see. That's what he's saying here. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. Then he said something very remarkable. 
and I appointed you. He said, I gave you something to do. When you prayed and asked Jesus to come into your life, he said, I saved you for a reason. I saved you for a purpose. There's a reality about your saved life. I've given you an assignment. That's what he's saying. That assignment, that you should go and bear much fruit. Did you catch that? That you should go. What does the Great Commission say? Y'all come? No. Go. Tell. That you should go and bear much fruit. The idea is to have a large, large, large spiritual family. That's what Jesus saved you to do. To have spiritual children. And that your fruit should remain. Now here's where it gets fun. How many of you have grandchildren? Wow. Anyone have great-grandchildren? Super. Any great-greats? Okay. You're so young. I knew that. I just had to ask. I'm sorry. But here's the point that Jesus is making here, that your fruit should remain. You are going to have spiritual children. And you're going to nurture and care for and develop and teach your children so that when they come of age, they would begin to have children who would have children who would have children children many of you can probably tell me your great great grandparents names how do you know that someone passed that information down to you that's what Jesus is saying here that information about that one true living God needs to be passed from generation to generation to generation We're going to see more of that in just a moment. But then listen to how Jesus closes this verse. He says that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Now let's be very careful here because there's a lot of people that take these verses and in this particular scenario, take it out of context and say, wow, whatever you ask God in Jesus' name, as long as you have in Jesus' name in your prayer, he's going to give it to you. So I can go down to the BMW factory, put my hands on, or showroom, put my hands on a BMW and say, in Jesus' name, give it to me, right? Yeah, good luck, huh? (laughs) That's not what this verse of Scripture is saying. But in the context of spiritual children, in the context of understanding what to say, what to do, how to share, how to allow the Holy Spirit to just work moment by moment so that you come to that opportunity of leading them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He said it's in that context. 
whatever you need. All you have to do is ask, and my Father's going to give it to you. When it comes to spiritual children, my Father wants them because I died for them. Isn't that great? It's in that understanding of prayer then that enables us to begin to see the next avenue of our life. We are to abide in Christ, understanding that that abiding leads to spiritual children. But it's in that context of prayer that we begin to really understand the heart of our God. When we think about prayer, Jesus taught his disciples when they asked him, you know, teach us to pray. He said, well, then pray in this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I've stopped there for a purpose. You don't want to spend the next four hours in here with me. So let's, uh, let's just keep it brief. The sacredness. We're not talking to just another person. When we talk to God, we're talking to God. Creator. We shouldn't treat Him with just a flippant understanding, but with the greatest love and respect. Then Jesus says, and I think this is so powerful and so important that he does this, and it's the first thing he says after initiating the reverence for God. He says, pray in this way, your kingdom come. And by the way, there should be a period there. The two, those two statements, your kingdom come, thy will be done, those are two different thoughts. Jesus says, begin with thy kingdom come. What's Jesus saying there? What is God's kingdom? It's us. It's that spiritual family that he's growing on earth. He wants us to be a part of his great kingdom work. And you and I, when we pray, your kingdom come, what we're asking is, God, I want to be a part of that. Make me a part of that. Show me what I need to be doing to be a part of your great kingdom coming. Because it is in the here and now, as well as eternal. But we get to be a part of that kingdom coming now. And so we'd better be praying in his will. Because that's the only way it's going to come. Jesus, even from the cross, or excuse me, from the Garden of Gethsemane, said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine. You see, there's a lot of things that I would like to do that need to be weighed in Scripture against the evidence of God's Word, God's will. Because here comes the hard part. We sometimes forget that Jesus himself came to die. And he was showing us 
in a physical way the spiritual costs for every one of us. Matter of fact, Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of sand or grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. When Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me, he wanted us to understand the principle of his life. The only way that Jesus could show us God's love, Paul put it this way, God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The only way God could show, could demonstrate the dimension of his love was to die, to send his only begotten son and die. You and I, and this is the hardest thing because we in America, it's all about us. You ask almost anyone abroad, who's the most arrogant people you know? And after the French comes the Americans. I, I'm not kidding. The French, I, I'm glad somebody else is first. But number two is Americans. Wow. What if when we ask that question, Americans were so down the line because we understood what it meant to die for Christ. To yield our life to him in such a way that people could see Jesus in and through us and not see us at all. That's what he's talking about here. He wants us to live our lives in such a way that we let them see God. Because that's really where we need to go with all of this. We need to see something here. We need to look at God's heart for just a moment. There in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Simon Peter gives us really a vision statement. God wants all to be saved. His vision is he doesn't want any to perish, but he wants them all to come to repentance. That's, that's God's vision. He doesn't want anyone to die. He doesn't want anyone to be eternally separated from him. He wants them to have that right relationship with him that only comes through Jesus. That's his heart. And just like our human heart, God's heart in some ways has two different chambers that enables us to better understand what that looks like in a physical way. That is, when you and I begin to live out God's heart, how do we help in understanding that none would perish but all would come to repentance? Well, there's two things. First of all, one chamber has to do with segments. If you look up that verse of Scripture, Matthew 13, verses 31 through 33, it's that grain of a mustard seed. It is that parable that Jesus uses of the smallest seed that becomes a large, large plant. What's he talking about there? God's heart is that he wants you to exercise that 
mustard seed faith that came in when you simply said, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Jesus, come into my life. I surrender my all to you. That mustard seed faith that began right there, Jesus, save me, is to begin to grow. It's to grow into a great, great, great plant, a mature person. That's what he wants. God wants all of us to continually be growing in our faith relationship with him in such a way that we show God's love to everyone. And how does that happen? That's where the other segment of God's heart or chamber of God's heart comes in. And that's, by the way, generation four, not Genesis four. Generation four, 2 Timothy 2.2, where Paul has shared with Timothy who is challenged now to share with faithful men who will share with others. You've got four generations there. You see, that's what fulfills God's first command to man. Do you realize the first command that God gave man was to be fruitful and multiply? Be fruitful. Have children. That's what he's talking about. Multiply generational growth. Teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. That makes sense, doesn't it? And so when we look at God's heart, we begin to understand, okay, what's our place in this? Well, he gives us, in essence, his field. And I don't know, I think we try to make things more complicated than they really are. Now, I know there's five things up there, but the first component up there is really what it's all about. God's fields. There's really only two. There's the lost and there's the saved. Now, follow me for just a moment. I know this is going to be like rocket science, and I'm liable to lose you. Okay? The lost, they don't know Jesus. What do you do with them? You tell them about Jesus. Okay, I told you it's rocket science. Hang in there. The saved. What do you do with them? If they know Jesus as Lord and Savior, but they're not going to any church, what do you do? Invite them here. If they've never been discipled, what do you do with them? You disciple them. That's God's field. There's only two kinds of people out there. Oh, yes, I know we've compartmentalized ourselves. We think we're Catholic. We think we're Methodist. We think we're Lutheran. We think we're all these different compartments. But in reality, there's only two. You're either saved or you're lost. The lost, you share the gospel, and you continue sharing the gospel till either they just tell you, no, 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 leave me alone, or they pray and ask Jesus to come into their life. With the saved, if they're not discipled, Again, you disciple them. If they are, then you help them to realize what they need to be doing in their spiritual walk of producing spiritual children. That's discipling. That's what he desires. And with that, there's four areas that you and I need to keep simple. Again, the Christian life should not be complicated. 
Because God is not complicated. He said, I love you. I sent my son to die for you. All you have to do is receive him. How hard is that? He's made it very simple, very plain. And he continues to do that in our walk with him. You and I ought to be able, and here's where we go back to where we started with the definition of a missionary, prepare disciple. You and I need to have a plan that is reproducible. That means whatever you do, you can simply teach to that next generation. And as they learn it, and as they apply it, and they do it, and they begin to have spiritual children, guess what they're going to do? The same thing. I'll never forget the very first convert that I saw in our ministry overseas, Elvis. I've told you about him before. Uh, Elvis is alive and doing quite well. But the interesting thing about Elvis was the fact that about a year and a half after I after he prayed and asked Jesus to come into his life, I asked him some very pointed questions. I asked him, you know, that very first night, the very first thing you wanted to do was go find your best friends and share Jesus with them. I didn't tell you to do that. Why did you do that? You know what he told me? He said, because I knew that's what you did for me. You see, that's what children do. They mimic their parents. And let's give them the good stuff to mimic. Jesus. Isn't that cool? Here's what we need to do. We need to develop a personal discipleship strategy based on those components that we saw just a moment ago, and we're going to talk about those again very briefly in just a moment. But look at this. Understanding God's plan is multiplication. Be fruitful and multiply. Everything we do must be reproducible. Everything we do must be simple enough that we can teach it to someone else. And so what that means is simply this. It's what we discover in Genesis chapters 4 and 5 of generational growth. I turn there very quickly. And believe it or not, I'm almost through. Yeah, I know you don't believe me. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 4. After Cain had killed his brother Abel, God came and God was trying to help him. God was still trying to redeem him. God still wanted to have a right relationship with Cain. But Cain at every turn turned his back on God until we come to verse 16 of chapter 4. Listen to what it says. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. Cain willfully chose disobedience. What do you suppose he taught his children? The same thing. Look at verse 23. And Lamech, this is the seventh generation of Cain. And Lamech said to his wives, 
not one as God had ordained, but two. Listen to what he says to them, and I'm going to skip down a little bit. For I have killed a man for wounding me, and a boy for striking me. Wow, what a heritage. That was the legacy. That was what was passed down from father to son, father to son, father to son. But look at verse 25 and 26 of chapter 4. And Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel. For Cain killed him. And to Seth, now follow along, to Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Do you catch what happens here? Adam had shared with Seth about how to have a right relationship with God. When Seth grew up and became a man and had a wife and had a son, Enosh, he taught his son about God. And when Enosh was old enough that he had a wife and had a son, he taught his son. And if you keep going down, you get to chapter 6 and you find a man by the name of Noah. And what you find in verse 9 or verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, verse 9, and these are the records of the generations. This is what was taught from Adam now down to Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. People saw Noah and they said there's something different about him. They knew there was something different about him. Where did he get it? We're talking ten generations after Adam. From father to son, father to son, father to son. Righteousness. Beloved, that's what you and I are called to do. That's what Jesus meant when he said, make disciples. Make disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples. And we reproduce areas of evangelism, discipling, yes, reproducing churches, as well as leadership. It all has to do with a generational motive. Maul. M-A-W-L. You're going to maul your disciples. Don't you just love that? I said it was going to be simple. You know, it's easy. Just maul them. The first one, model. Teach what you know. You say, I don't know much. Do you know Jesus? You know everything. Everything you need to know to tell someone else about Jesus. Model it. Let them begin to know. Assist. Simply means to begin to mentor them. To realize as you are modeling in their life and they are touching other people's lives and they're beginning to see people come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you begin to assist them as they're doing their work. You continue to teach them. You continue to help them grow and develop, but you get to that point where you begin to assist them as they are sharing their faith to the degree that now then you begin to watch. You're now in a third generation out there. 
you're able to continue to teach your first generation, your son or your daughter, you're still teaching them. You still have a relationship with them and, and a weekly relationship with them, but you're enabling them. You're holding them accountable as they are working now with their second and third generation so that eventually you get to that fourth generation. Once it gets out there, and usually, let's be honest, this usually takes between nine months to a year. Nine months to a year for this process to take and unfold. Finally, you have the privilege of being that great, great grandmother or dad. And you're still holding your son and daughter accountable. But they have continued to do the same thing that you taught them to do. Wow. Here's kind of what it looks like. This is you and your community. You begin to share your faith with one person. That one person hears about Jesus, and they pray and ask Jesus to come into their life. Very soon, you begin to work with a second person. We're talking two years now, but you're working with them, and they're working with someone. And very soon, all of them begin to pray and ask Jesus to come into their life. Now then, you've got four people, four out there working and sharing, meeting new people. And we're only talking about one, meeting new people. And prayerfully, they will come and ask Jesus to come into their life. Can I share something with you? I did the numbers just a moment ago. With just the number of people in this room, if every one of us just committed ourselves to one person, to disciple one person this year, in four years, you would have touched over 13,000 people with the message of Jesus. Sounds impossible, doesn't it? But when you look at the multiplication, it can and it does happen. So here's the question. What's keeping you from building that intentional relationship? And then finally, are you willing to start tonight? Let's pray.